ESG, a term that has not only gained popularity, but has become embedded in corporate credos. What is it? Why has it become so important? Who handles it? How does it affect us? And most importantly, how can this solve our climate problems? The environmental, social, and governance integration into financial services gives business and investors the option to advocate for a sustainable future. Major financial institutions, like our friends at Scotiabank, understand that implementing task forces and strategizing their ambitions to be a leader in these markets cannot be business as usual. Rather, it's an opportunity to accelerate innovation and become economic influencers. In our share society, business, government, and investors alike have a chance to change the climate of investment and offer renewable solutions to old world problems. Climate strategist Kevin Quinlan, Director of Research at the Institute of Sustainable Finance, Ryan Riordan, and Scotiabank's Head of ESG Research, Patrick Bryden, join us to show how Canada is poised to mobilize and secure a sustainable economic future. Welcome to our sixth episode of The Edge of Energy, presented by Scotiabank, a podcast about pushing Canada's energy transition forward. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Patrick, we hear these terms a lot. What are the distinguishing factors between ESG and sustainable finance? There's an alphabet soup of acronyms and terms that exist in sustainability. And while many of these concepts are self-evident, it's a little bit like learning a language where some time is required to become conversant. I found it interesting that Canada's expert panel on sustainable finance took the opportunity to specifically define what it actually meant by the term sustainable finance and its work. The way I would try to simplify that for myself and our listeners in terms of that definition is to basically say there now exists a societal pull for markets to capitalize opportunities and risks in a manner that does not impair our future. And it's as simple as that. We can get technical about it, but I think that's the heart of it. So sustainable finance, in other words, is really the way in which that form of capitalization now happens in the marketplace. And I would say this, finance has been around for a long time and I would argue that the ideas of sustainability are also not new. I think our grandparents were all familiar with a lot of these things. What is new is the identification of externalities from economic processes that until recently have remained largely unaddressed and therefore unpriced by traditional finance and shareholder capitalism. Emerging financial instruments like green bonds, transition bonds, investor taxonomies, et cetera, these are what I would refer to as the tools and the rules that now help shape capital investment in sustainable ways. So that's sustainable finance. To me, when you think about ESG, it's broader. We often say to clients, what isn't under the umbrella of ESG? Uh, it literally includes consideration of the planet, all of the people on it, and how companies steward themselves within the global economy. ESG, then from my perspective, is best thought of as factors that we can now measure and analyze due to the rise of data in our information age. Traditional finance and accounting have produced what we know to be quote-unquote financial information. 
whereas ESG factors are referred to as quote-unquote non-financial information. And it's really the union of these two realms that, in our view, helps better complete the investor mosaic that is needed by investors. So, you know, in a nutshell, I see sustainable finance as a subset of ESG. It is an outcome of the process that considers ESG themes and factors. And, and what it does is it appropriately capitalizes them within stakeholder capitalism today. Kevin. You not only bring over a decade of experience in climate infrastructure, sustainable finance, and environmental leadership, but you also help businesses, governments, and nonprofits identify climate risk. It can be said that all investments involve some degree of risk. What does that look like in the environmental space? It's a really important question. So when we look at risk from a climate standpoint, there's generally two ways we categorize that. The first would be things like what we refer to as physical risk. So those are tend to be the most tangible ones people think of, extreme weather events, heat waves, droughts, flooding. But it also includes long-term trends, so things like sea level rise. But then there's also another category of risk that we refer to as transition risk. So these come from the changes that climate change and the responses to it will bring. So that could be things like increasing carbon taxes, new types of regulations that limit or ban certain products, the emergence of new technologies like electric vehicles, it could be new types of legal risks or reputational risks for big polluters. There's the physical risk and there's the transition risk. And the question from an investment standpoint is, how do you incorporate these climate risks when you're making your investment decisions? And the challenge is that a lot of traditional risk measurements are backwards looking. And particularly on climate change, looking at past weather patterns isn't going to help you when you're forecasting for the future about how the climate could change. And it doesn't really help you when you're trying to assess those current and future risks. A lot of people, when it comes to climate risk, think specifically about greenhouse gas emissions. And they think that the biggest risk is around, if you're a company, how much do you emit? Are you a big emitter? But that's really only one part of the story because emissions are primarily backwards looking. You're, what are your current emissions? What were they last year? That doesn't tell you what a business's plan is to deal with climate change. And that's really where we're starting to see the shift in the financial space is how do we get information and data around risks that are more forward looking so that we can incorporate climate change into investment decisions. Ryan, you've worked extensively within the financial industry with regulators, policymakers and central banks. What does risk look like from where you sit? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's certainly the universal understanding that return that you get from investing comes with commensurate risk, right? There is no risk-free return to be earned in any kind of, at least in a financial or economic context. So in the environmental context, what does that mean? It could mean a, a number of things, but imagine you're investing in two firms. They've got a similar business model. And one of those business models is, let's say, waste-free. And I'm evaluating it. And the other business model generates the same returns, but is not waste-free. It requires the free dumping of garbage on someone's front lawn, for instance. And as long as the dumping of garbage on someone's front lawn is free forever, there's no risk associated with that. However, if I'm an investor and I think, oh, this business model isn't going to be viable forever, right? At some point, someone's going to require repayment for whatever it is that's associated with my business model. And that's how I like to think of environmental risks. So we get this while perhaps in the 90s or in the 80s or even in the, in the aughts, some things weren't priced. There's always this risk that something is going to be priced. And that could be in terms of emissions. It could be in terms of 
orphaned wells, you know, all sorts of all sorts of different types of risks. And that's really just one specific type of investment risk. There's also physical risks associated with climate change, right? We've seen extreme weather on the West Coast. We've seen extreme weather all over the place. So that's, uh, I think that was one type of financial risk, but there are many risks you can think of. And investors just expect to be compensated for bearing these risks. How can these priorities be built into the current financial investment infrastructure? There's a number of ways I think you're starting to see that happen. The first piece that's really been a priority that we've seen in the financial space is around disclosure. It's the desire and the need to have data from companies, insights on them, not just how they plan to address climate risk, but how they intend to position themselves around climate opportunities. And the desire to have you know, forward-looking, decision-useful information. One of the best-known drivers of the, the push for more disclosure and that we're seeing in Canada and around the world is what's known as the, the TCFD, which comes from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Now, this is a framework that was put together by a task force that had representatives from across the financial community. It was chaired by former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg. It brought forward a framework that basically said, here is what investors are looking for from businesses when it comes to disclosing on climate change. Because what they found was businesses were putting all sorts of different data uh, and reporting information out. It wasn't comparable. It wasn't really a lot of it what people wanted or was useful. So they put forward this framework to help guide companies in terms of what are the questions they should be asking and how do they report on that. The TCFD is very much sort of now the, I would say, the gold standard globally. It's been endorsed by the G7 finance ministers. It's mandatory for the largest publicly traded companies in the UK. Uh, Government of Canada has endorsed it, urged provincial agencies to adopt it. And there's more than already uh, 2,000 organizations that have signed on and to do TCFD-aligned reports. So why is this important? Well, it provides a framework for businesses to really look at climate across the organization. Historically, what you often saw was that issues of climate or the environment were siloed. They were off in the sustainability team or the ESG team. Now what you're seeing is a recognition that actually climate impacts across the organization. It impacts facilities, it impacts risk management, it impacts the the finance team. So how do you daylight those issues when you want to disclose on climate? Well, you can use this framework to do that and and to dig in to get at those issues. The thing about it is it's not just about risk, but it's also about opportunities. Investors want to know if there's going to be a big shift to net zero and increasing electric vehicles, does your business have a plan to capitalize on that? Because that's a good story. People want to know that. But a lot of times companies may not be articulating what their plan is around that. That's really where we're seeing it start to play out is in those disclosures. That effort to increase and enhance how businesses talk and disclose on climate is really only going to increase in in the years ahead. So if by infrastructure you mean the decision-making process of investors or lenders, the first thing that they're going to need is data. They're going to need to understand perhaps that a business model is predicated on the ability to dump waste on someone's front lawn costlessly forever. No business model is really predicated on, on, on doing that. I'm, I'm you know, making it purposely silly, but thinking about things like emissions, right? And what we want to know is that for a set of firms, 
how important are emissions and let's think of CO2 emissions in order to generate the revenues. Right? So if I'm an investor, I might want to know, well, firm X emits one megaton of CO2 and firm Y only a half a megaton. They've got the same revenues, they've got the same business model, but you want to know that X ante. And so you need to build this environmental data or this environmental data backbone into your decision-making process so that you can make a decision based on A, the returns or the financials of a firm, and B, the environmental uh, aspects. And this, I use the, the emissions example, but this could be in anything that's environmental. It could be in the, the, raw, the raw material that they use, right? It could be in forestry. It could be in wastewater. So there's all sorts of things that we used to think were unpriced inputs to doing business, and now we realize that these are priced inputs. And investors and lenders need to know what these, what these inputs are. Patrick, as head of ESG research at Scotiabank, I'm sure you've come across a portfolio or two. It seems like organizations would be overwhelmed by these standards and frameworks. So is there a universal set of ESG metrics and disclosures for companies to use? Yeah, thanks for this question. I would say perhaps the most important topic of the day. So we've done three annual ESG investment research reports now at Scotiabank, Global Bank and Markets. Our latest annual report was titled The Forces at Play, The Quest for the Theory of Everything in ESG. So where this all started for me is one of our clients actually over in Europe talked about the notion of ESG chaos. Everybody's doing it. It's almost like who isn't doing it. And when you try to actually get through to what all the standards are, what all the ratings agencies are, what all the data is, this really results in pretty challenging landscape to understand. This whole, I mean, the fancy word is ecosystem, but there's still challenges in the interpretation, what the data actually means. The World Economic Forum, so these are the people in Davos that convene every year, and the big four accounting firms, they published a white paper basically just calling for the need for harmonization and actually providing a bit of a start that builds on what's already come from before. And the the five, now four leading sustainability and integrated reporting organizations heard that call. And so they produced a statement of intent to work together towards comprehensive corporate reporting. So these are organizations of CDP or formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDSB, the Carbon Disclosure Standards Board, GRI, and then IIRC and SASB. And those latter two have merged to create the Value Reporting Foundation. So there, there was a third paper. It was a consultation paper from IFRS. So basically the global accounting standard that is out there. They asked for their members to basically comment by the end of 2020 as to whether or not from an accounting perspective, they too should jump into this process to try to harmonize and standardize sustainability reporting. And the vote from the membership was yes to proceed. Um, and what that looks like, practically speaking for investors and companies, is that we, we think that's going to result most likely in the prospect for integration reporting. Sandra Odendahl and Robert Niven joined us on episode four to enlighten us on carbon capture and storage. What was interesting was the offsets and also the push to be more accountable in offset marketplaces. What does this look like for businesses and investors? The idea of carbon capture and sequestration is that, well, if I've got a business model that's predicated on uh, emitting CO2, well, I need to capture that and remove this from the atmosphere. And carbon capture and storage, or carbon sequestration, is at this point uh, early stage scale and, and expensive. Now, there could be a whole other number of firms or innovators around the country, but also you know, sort of around the world. And they might have really low cost ways to capture 
carbon from the atmosphere. One example could be building a forest. It could be revitalizing a salt marsh. It could be reinvesting in, in a peat bog, right? So there are all sorts of ways to capture carbon. It's often not free, right? If someone wants to reforest an acre, it costs money to reforest the acre. You know, the land is valuable. The labor that goes into it is valuable. And so this additional cost needs to be covered. Now, this is where carbon credits would come in. So someone could come in and say, oh, well, hey, if you've captured a ton of carbon with your forest or your salt marsh or whatever, I will buy this ton of carbon and I can offset it for emissions that I've actually gone through. Now, there are some uh, problems associated with it. We have to make sure that it's so that the carbon is actually stored and is captured and, and put away. But we, you know, there are UN programs for this. There are all sorts of you know, ways to verify that an offset has actually been offset. But I think that's the, the economic rationale is if people can, can abate carbon cheaper than I can, why would I do it? I'll just let the market determine what the costs for these things are. And when it gets expensive, then I might invest in, in sequestration myself. And when it's inexpensive, I'll let someone who can do it less expensively. So we're harnessing the sort of the power of the markets to allocate capital to their, to their best use. With accountability comes regulation and measurement. How will this be implemented and who will be the gatekeepers? We need mandatory disclosure of emissions uh, in Canada. We need mandatory disclosure that's comparable across firms and across time for an individual firm. So if I look to 2018 emissions for an individual firm, I should be able to compare that to 2020 emissions for a firm and be able to directly calculate whether or not they've increased their emissions or, or they've decreased their emissions. Even firms across industries, I should be able to look at, well, you know, firm in industry A has lower emissions than firm in industry B and also with, uh, within industries. These are the data that financial market participants use to make allocation decisions. And the important thing to note is that if we don't have data, and this data isn't disclosed, financial market participants, but also regulators, make the worst case assumption about what's actually going on for those firms. So by not disclosing any data, we're actually getting into the basically the worst case scenario. Right? And so just releasing something, even if it's, you think, objectively bad, well, it can't be as bad as what people are going to assume based on sort of this worst case assessment of what's going on. And so I think that getting mandatory disclosure, making that data easy to use, making it more granular, making it comparable across firms and time uh, is something that we need to, to help to fuel our transition. We should be happy now that we have a carbon price because we're not going to be subjected to carbon border adjustments. And we have firms that are used to dealing with these types of things. And I think that's the same with disclosure. We just have to realize we're in a, we're just in a new world and disclosing our environmental inputs and outputs uh, are just going to be, you know, they just have to be part of business as usual. I'm very much of the firm belief that it's not something that can just be left to market actors. Uh, it's going to require government leadership and, and regulations to really set the rules of the game and then let people operate within that. I just don't believe we're gonna see the, the level and quality of disclosure that's needed at the pace that's needed. I think you're starting to see a movement that governments recognize that, regulators recognize that. I would also say big chunks of the private sector want that too. They want a standardized playing field. They don't wanna be guessing what to put out there. I mentioned earlier that the G7 finance ministers endorse the TCFD framework. So you're starting to see those efforts of national governments come together and say, hey, we need to be all rowing in the same direction on this. Let's start putting these common systems in place. 
there's a consultation on right now about how to improve and enhance and provide greater clarity on the specific required questions and disclosures. So we're getting into things like you don't just have to disclose emissions, but what are all of the different types of emissions that you would have to disclose? Increasingly, companies are talking about how they're going to get to net zero, what's referred to as a transition plan. Well, what should some of the guidelines for that look like? You know, what makes a good transition plan? Things like, well, you need, you need interim targets. You can't just put something in 2050 and have nothing in between. You need to have buy-in, approval from the board. It needs to be tied to tangible changes in your, your capital spending and your investments. Investors want to be able to compare companies. They don't want to have to be doing a bunch of extra research to figure out, well, this starting point is somewhat different from this other company's starting point. I have to tell you, the nerd in me loves this question. We hold on very dearly to numbers. So numerical items in our work probably represent about 85% of how we get to our conclusions. And then we do look at policy and target information. So sort of binary data, like, yes, no, do you have a policy or did you achieve or not achieve a target? But again, these things are all kind of looking backwards for investors trying to actually make this practice and discipline predictive to tell you what the future looks like is really where it becomes a lot more useful. So some of the really exciting things that we're seeing now would be going into areas like natural language, where you have artificial intelligence combing through press releases or recent, uh, you know, immediate comments or articles that come out in real time to basically try to assess how things are changing, what's being said, and where the puck is going instead of where it's already been. And so that's really exciting. If you're if you're somebody who is a financial analyst or investor, you know, my wife's a teacher by background. And if she were to have had a problem with something that was in the uh, Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund portfolio, she would have had to have probably taken a day off school, try to drive up to Edmonton from where we live in Calgary, try to be heard at a pretty long meeting maybe not even be heard at all. And now, you know, if she wanted to, she could just send a tweet. And that kind of example really just speaks to the immediacy of how the stewards of companies and capital have to respond to their stakeholders. And I think it also speaks to kind of the democratization of investing and the empowerment of the individual. And that comes down to really simple things that we're all experiencing. It's the rise of social media. It's the digitization and electrification of our whole kind of process of the, the economy and, and everybody's accessibility to it. That can't be anything but good. The level of accountability and transparency is on the rise. And I think that's a positive thing for, thing for investors. It's 2021. We're fresh off of a year-long pause. What are the new stats? How is Canada measuring up to its financial goal to get to net zero? There are two parts to that. One is we don't have great data in Canada yet, and we nor do we have it really in the United States or in, or in Europe, although it, in both jurisdictions it's, it's better. And what do I mean by that is it's neither granular nor timely. So we have 2018 data for provinces. We have 2019 data for industries. We don't have 2020 data. We don't have 2021 data in terms of emissions. This is a problem. This is a problem for financial markets. So if I'm a loan officer, today and I want to make a lending decision, well, how do I know if a firm is high or low emissions? How do I know if they're above average or below average for a province? How do we know if Canada's meeting its its obligations? Taking a look at 
sort of the trend from 2017, 18, 19. And then the projections, we see that over the last three or four years that our projections for 2030 emissions haven't changed, meaning environment. And so ECCC hasn't changed their projections for, for 2030, despite the fact that on the political side, we have announcements that we're going to get up to 45% uh, reduction. The positive news is that uh, within the last six or 12 months, the announcements for capital projects, programs, going specifically to reducing, uh, reducing CO2 emissions subjectively feels like it's, you know, it's, it's tenfold. I mean, every, every other day we see a new actual commitment or the flowing of funds to, to carbon abatement or low carbon technologies. Could be electric vehicles, electric buses, electrification of uh, sort of long stretches of transportation, building retrofits. So we, we certainly have seen a putting of their, their money where their mouth is, which is, which is good. And that should translate into, into lower emissions in the medium term. Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance Christia Freeland, and the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Jonathan Wilkinson, launched the Sustainable Finance Action Council in May of this year. What does this mean for Canada? What does this mean for you in your current role? What policies can come to pass from this work? Yeah, well, I was glad to see it get established. I think it's important to recognize the, the genesis of, of where it came from. The federal government had a group that was referred to as the Expert Panel on Sustainable Finance that was set up a few years ago, and they released a final report just over two years ago, uh, spring of 2019, that outlined a number of steps that Canada could and should take to really support and enhance and build momentum behind sustainable finance. And so what is sustainable finance? It's about making sure that climate considerations are incorporated into financial business decisions and and how to get the broader financial system and financial markets mobilizing capital behind climate positive solutions to be investing in renewables, to be investing in projects that drive down emissions. One of the recommendations they had in that report was to create this action council to help drive a number of other recommendations and support for sustainable finance forward at the federal government level. Those of us in Canada know there are a lot of challenges with the provincial federal framework that we have. So a lot of the important moves around sustainable finance are not directly within the control of the federal government. So one of the most obvious ones uh, are things like uh, provincial securities uh, commissions who determine uh, the types of disclosure from publicly traded companies. So the Ontario Securities Commission had a recommendation from a task force on modernizing capital markets to include TCFD reporting amongst the companies they oversee, and they're currently studying it. There's a number of other pieces and actors in the system, whether it's the Bank of Canada or OSFI, which oversees our financial institutions. Uh, There's a lot of work happening on sustainable finance uh, across the board, and I, I feel that the federal government has put a lot of support behind it, and is, is doing you know, a number of the things that are within its control. But there, there are a number of other things that rest with, uh, with other agencies, and, and we'll just have to wait and see how they move those forward. Without revealing too much information, certainly the, the publicly available information, I think it's a big first, I shouldn't even say first step, it's a big step, right? It's about translating the recommendations that came out of the expert panel, recommendations that came out in late 2019, early 2020, if I'm not mistaken, and turning these into actionable decisions. So it's it's really about how do we translate all of our ambition to reduce emissions into action. 
So including actual investments in innovative firms, in evaluating whether or not we're actually meeting our goals, collecting data, making sure that we have a, a robust financial market, or ideally a set of products that people could actually invest in to help profit from a transition from our current higher carbon economy to a lower carbon economy. We know Canada's oil and gas industry is going through a major transition. What are some suggestions or solutions for how they might plan for this? To be clear, no company has it figured out. It really is a mix of setting some of those targets, laying out a strategy, but recognizing there are some some uncertain things there. If you're in the oil and gas industry and you are going to lay out what your strategy is to get to net zero, what are the things that need to be there to make that credible? There are things like, again, the interim target. The common standard is you need a target for emissions reductions for 2030 so that you're starting to look at you know, something that's not too far out in terms of business cycles. It needs to be part of the broader organizational strategy. I mentioned earlier the shift from treating climate as a siloed issue to an across-the-board issue. And parallel with that, the TCFD itself, they recommend, based on what they're seeing, that the strategy needs you know, approval, buy-in from either the most senior committee of the board or the board itself. And another key piece, and this comes up obviously a lot in the oil and gas industry, is that issue of offsets. Uh, so a strategy cannot rely heavily on offsets. There, there is a role in offsets and, and there are a lot of debates around how much or focus there should be and what is needed around offsets. But fundamentally, we need to reduce emissions and reduce emissions within your control. It can't heavily rely on untested technologies. You can't set a 2050 goal and hope that technology in 2049 is going to come in at the buzzer and get you there. And you need the tangible changes in that, that capital spending and investment that I mentioned earlier. So where are your investments going? Are you putting your investments basically where your mouth is? Do you have climate targets, but are you backing those up with investments? And if you have those things in place, then those are signs that, that the plan is credible. And that's not specific to oil and gas. That goes for, for any sort of sector. And, and one thing I would say is that, you know, frankly, in Canada, a number of companies in oil and gas actually have pretty good climate disclosures mainly because they've been getting investor pressure for a number of years. And it's actually other sectors that historically haven't really gotten many questions about climate where we're not seeing the level of disclosure as advanced that we'd like to see. And, and now we're starting to see that catch up in areas like, like transportation or real estate or utilities. So disclosure is important. It's going to be important. It's not just important for oil and gas. I think it's just important for financial markets in general, right? I mean, data is the new oil or there's all sorts of uh, analogies that, that you can use. I think the one thing that I think is important that often gets left out of the discussion when we're thinking of how is the transition going to affect our oil and gas sector, I think we should stop thinking of it as an oil and gas sector and start thinking of it as an energy sector. Just because we're not going to have as many oil and gas jobs doesn't mean we're not going to have more or just as many energy jobs, right? And so we have to think about how do we retrain, retool uh, these people for jobs that are going to be here in 10 years, but also in 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years and are even available now. And it's not about just losing oil and gas jobs. It's about retooling for you know, the future of, of, of energy production. Certainly, the new energy jobs aren't going to be concentrated in the geographic location the way the, the, way the current ones are. But you'd be surprised at how much renewable energy generation is already happening around our traditional oil and gas fields. And to think that, you know, Canadian energy labor isn't mobile, you know, I know a lot of locations where people would fly in and out of Fort McMurray, come back 
home for, for a week and then go back up to Fort McMurray for, for six weeks. So, you know, if it wasn't an impediment before we had renewable energy jobs, I, I don't see it as being a, an impediment after. You know, I've had the benefit of being an energy analyst in my career, and that's actually what led me to try to more intensively research ESG at Scotiabank. Really, I think the adage that is very applicable for the oil and gas business right now is it's something I heard from a hockey coach, actually, and he basically just said, what's in the way becomes the way. As a simple sports analogy, I think it's a wonderful way to describe how once a team or an industry understands what the field of play is and how the goalposts might be moving or changing or the equipment might be changing or the game dynamic might be changing. I think that element of adaptation becomes operative. We're at a day and age where we have seen externalities identified, such as emissions. That's a good example where you then see policy responses to that. So we have you know, carbon taxes come into play nationally as well as uh, from an administrative standpoint, provincially. We have clean fuel standards. We have tax credits emerging on carbon capture, utilization and uh, storage. So these elements all from a policy perspective help give the industry a guide to basically find new pathways. I, for one, am actually pretty optimistic about the ability of the industry to innovate, to be entrepreneurial, the scientific and technical competencies that are embedded in it, and all the professional skill sets that are um, around it. Actually, over 80% of the emissions from oil and gas don't come from the industry itself. It comes from the consumer actually burning the barrel. So it's you and me driving on the Trans-Canada Highway, taking our kids to, you know, sports practice, et cetera, or going to tournaments. You know, it's not just from energy. The Toronto City Dump is actually one of the largest uh, sources of methane release in Canada. Uh, The Montreal Sewage Treatment Facility is one of the largest uh, sources of nitrous oxide historically in Canada. You know, I think there needs to be sort of a common team approach here where everybody has responsibility. And I think that that holistically will, will take Canada to a better place. Um, we're, we're beautifully endowed with energy across the whole system, from hydro to solar to wind to the whole hydrocarbon spectrum. And it's really about decarbonizing efficiently. Turning over a renewable leaf, if you will, what does this future look like for clean technology investments and also the private building retrofit market? It really means that there's going to be a lot of opportunity to get in on new and exciting technologies in the ground floor. It means that it's going to be risky, but as we sort of heard at the outset of my part of this this podcast is that, you know, with risk comes return. And so we have to really think about how is it that we're going to set up a, a financial infrastructure that's able to bear the risk, identify the, the firms, the technologies that are going to be the technologies of the future. We had a capital mobilization plan that we released in uh, September of 2020. And one of our top three industries uh, or opportunities we saw was private retrofitting. In fact, there we found that the returns to investing on, I always like to say, wrapping your house in a warm jacket are actually greater than the costs. And so really there, I think what we need is just a behavioral nudge. And I think the federal government through the CIB, the Canada Infrastructure Bank, has already, you know, sort of given a a good start. It's like, hey, here's a free couple hundred or thousand dollars to do something, focusing attention on a lot of really easy, almost riskless investments in uh, in our private buildings. We do emit a lot. It is a hard part of the uh, of the emissions sort of that we need to, to abate. But I think if we can just sort of nudge people along there, we'll find that there's, you know, we'll get the, the ball rolling. Now, I would say the one problem is it's hard to imagine how we're going to 
get enough qualified people to retrofit all of you know Canada's housing stock, or at least uh, a large proportion of the housing stock. So we're going to have to think about how do we train people to actually implement all of these you know, retrofit or these small upgrades in an amount of time that's you know meaningful. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Kofi. It's been great to be here and be able to talk about my favorite subject. Thanks so much for the opportunity and uh, my compliments on the work you're doing. It's great. That's it for this episode of The Edge of Energy. I'm your host, Kofi Hope. Thank you to all of those who have put the show together this week. Mahira Lashman, Angela Missary, Camille Hemming, and Sheena Rossiter. Look for us on your favorite podcasting app. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.